Are you ready to get into the message? I am. I'm excited. This is something that's been on my heart for a long time. Excited to share it with you. Let's begin by praying today as we continue our series, Left is Mark, as we're walking through the book of Mark. And today we're going to walk through Mark. We're also going to refer back to Matthew 18. So it's going to kind of be a teeter-totter between the two texts. And I think you're going to get a lot out of this as we look at two interactions between Jesus and Peter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, anoint these words that we speak. Lord, as we are talking through your word, I pray that we would elevate your words and really take them to heart, not in terms of just the information that they impart to us, but help them to transform us, help them to change us, in particular, the relationships around us that we live and breathe and move in this life. But sometimes it gets ugly. Sometimes it gets hard, Lord. And people hurt us, and there's wounds, and there's healing that needs to happen, and you set the way. Lord, you made an amazing way for us to live when it comes to forgiveness in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're going to explore two interactions between Jesus and Peter. The first one is in Matthew 18, and then we're going to move over to Mark and look at Mark 14 and the Passover, which represents kind of Thursday in Holy Week. And uh, before we do that, let's look at Matthew 18. And uh, in this text, I'm not going to read it to you. Just going to go really fast and furious through, Mar uh, through Matthew 18. And you can open your Bibles if you want to follow along with me in the story. But Jesus begins to lay out this system of confronting those who sin against us, those who offend us. And in fact, he says, like, you know, if somebody offends you, you're supposed to go confront them, you know, deal with them face to face if you can. And if they uh, reject you, then go with a friend, and there's a whole system whereby you're supposed to do that. Now, during this, uh, this uh, interaction where Jesus is teaching, uh, Peter's kind of standing back in the shadows. He's observing. He's listening to Jesus. And I think, this is just my speculation, but I think that Peter's thinking about somebody that he uh, had a, a, a hurtful relationship with. Maybe somebody that had offended Peter, um, somebody that had wronged him, somebody in his past, because he pulls Jesus aside after this teaching, and he asks him a question, and he says, how many times, Jesus, do I need to forgive someone who's hurt me, who sins against me? And he comes up with a really good answer, like he's a good Bible scholar, because he comes up with a very biblical number, and he says, seven, you know? And Jesus is like, mm, seven, okay. And he says, should it be seven? Good number. And what, so what I'm going to do is stop right here and say that already Peter's sort of revealing some confusion uh, about the nature of forgiveness. And this, this kind of confusion affects and infects all of us. Most of us have suffered from the same confusion. But Peter's assumption is that forgiveness is something that I give to someone else who's offended me. That it's a gift. It's for the benefit of the offender. That if you want to forgive, you want to do something nice for somebody that hurts you, forgive them. So you can do it, Peter says, seven times, right? Jesus, is that right? And then in the eighth time, it's like, that's too much. That's too far. I'm going to draw the line. He says, well, I'll stretch. I'll bend. I'll forgive seven times. But at that point, you know, I'm going to draw the line, right? Isn't that enough is enough? Like how many times? Is it seven? And many of us are sort of in that same boat. We're convinced that to forgive someone is to do them a favor. Why, why do we think that? Because when we're hurt— and when we're seriously injured, when we've been wronged, and we're living with that pain, and it, it sort of resounds in our soul, and it does, wow, I mean, hurt and pain, that's real. 
It's real. We're not going to gloss over that. We're not going to pretend it doesn't exist this morning. But there's always a sense that that person is a debtor to you, that they owe you something, okay? They've taken something from you, and, um, and, and that's actually why we use the language, you owe me an apology, right? You owe that to me. You took something from me. You owe me something back. How about an apology? It's a debt that someone owes you. And what we do is we sort of hold on to the wrongdoing. We hold on to the pain, the injury, the wound, and we begin to build our case around it. Have you ever done that? Like you just begin to sort of like think of all of the rational reasons why the hurt is real in your life. And not to in any way degrade the feelings that you have, but the wound is very real. And so we begin to kind of create a narrative, uh, sort of like an apologetic to explain our hurt and we do it in a very logical, thought-out way. And we really believe that uh, we will just wait, and someday that person will come and will pay us back. They will actually pay back the debt. And when the memories, I mean, maybe the memories come back in a day, maybe a week, could be a month. Um, and uh, that, that is, we get angry. We get very, very angry. How am I doing on my mic today? Good? Okay, Awesome. That's some issues in the first service. That's why I asked. And so um, the, we, we say, look, you know, you, you come back to me. You, you give me something back. You pay me back. And what the memories just flow, and they keep us angry, right? We, we just get angry. Now, how many of you guys have ever done this? Ever had an imaginary conversation in your head about somebody that's hurt you? Yeah, hands going up. Like in the first service, everybody was like, some guy was like, yeah, totally. <laughs> and I was like, that was good, man. So I, I appreciate the honesty. Um, and, and we do, we just like rehearse this over and over again. Have you ever woken up? One day I woke up, this was a couple of years ago. It was like in the middle of the night, like 2.30 in the morning. And all of a sudden, like I started going over in my head what it would be like to confront this person over the situation. And I began to sort of imagine, and I think that you do this too, like it's me, and I'm, I'm always right, of course. It always looked really good in this conversation, but there's always people around me. It's never just me and the other person. It's like me, the other person, but then there's all of you are there too. And when I'm talking about like in this situation, like all of you guys are on my side, you know, like you're cheering me on. You're going, yeah, show them who's right, Scott. You know, we feel bad. And so we, we just, we really feel like, this is sort of a situation where there's some justice, there'll be a conversation, there's going to be some payback. And on the other spectrum, the problem is, is that we, we, we've often told other Christians that it's wrong to feel hurt. It's wrong to feel offended. It's wrong to feel pain. It's wrong to feel wounded, that you shouldn't feel that way. And so what happens then, on the other side, is we take the emotions and the hurt and the pain, and we stuff them way down. I mean, we stuff them. We're so, so good at that. And some people are better at it than others, but stuffing emotions is a big Christian thing that we do. What happens then is because you wrongly feel that you shouldn't feel offended or hurt or wounded and you're stuffing is that depression sets in. Depression can sit in when you have unresolved feelings or anxiety or anger over a situation and you don't deal with it. You push it down and exist then beneath the surface. What happens then is through time, that, that hurt, that offense, it, it exists under the surface, but it starts to bubble up, right? And so you'll see it like come out, explode like a jack-in-the-box, just out of nowhere, boom, you know, enraged, right? Um, or it could just, you know, you could suppress it for years, maybe decades, unresolved thing, but it's still there. And occasionally you think about it and you begin again to replay the conversation, build your case again. Sometimes that can happen even if somebody is dead. Like, even if the person that's wronged you doesn't even exist anymore, then you're just, you're just still dealing with the hurt and the pain and the suffering. 
depressing it, sharing it. And that's very unhealthy. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not stuffing down your emotions. We'll get to that later. How to deal with forgiveness. What really is forgiveness. Ever met somebody that loves to share their story too? Like, I mean, you know, you just meet them and, and they just want to talk about some hurt, some pain, and they'll relive it over and over again. And that's kind of all, that's, that's actually the basis of your friendship. You get together, you share stories, but this person will always go to a particular story or some hurt. And they are, they're always waiting to unload on you. And what happens when they are finished, you're always on their side. You always are like, yeah, that other person. There's never two sides of the story. Always your friend, they're right, and you're always on their side. I mean, it takes a little bit of effort, but sometimes you can maybe see the other side of the story, but then that person will come and keep building their case, and you're involved in it now, and you're connected to that, and you're connected to their unforgiveness, and they can even become the basis of sort of a sick friendship. It's kind of invading that relationship, right? Um, but we all have our tactics, right? We all have the way that we deal with it. Some people are stuffers. Some people are storytellers. They want to get it out and talk about it all the time and relive the hurt. Uh, but but for, no matter what, your feeling is, and you're, you're coming from the position that I'm right. Like, I'm right in the story. I mean, I'm, I'm the innocent victim. I'm always the innocent victim. And if you have the audacity to come up to me and tell me that I should forgive, you don't understand like, why should I do them, that other person, the favor of forgiving them? Why should I give them that gift? Why do they deserve that? They owe me. I don't owe them. That's the problem. And Jesus understands that confusion. He really does. He understands it. He answers the confusion the way he answered it to Peter by telling a story. So Peter is there. He's had this conversation about seven. Jesus says, no, it's seven times 70 and all that. So he goes on to tell a story to Peter, and the story is amazing. Let me just go, let me tell it to you really quickly. First of all, Jesus talks about a king, uh, this wealthy king, and he has, uh, he decides one day he's going to settle all his accounts. So he goes and he pulls out the ledger and he brings in everybody that owes him money. He brings in this particular servant, and Jesus wants to zero in on this guy because this guy owes him a whopping 10,000 talents. Now, what's a talent? Is that like a dollar? Is that a dollar? So is that $10,000? No, 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 no. Uh, one talent, one talent, you can look this up, totally true, is equivalent to about 20 years of the average labor of a person at that time. 20 years, one talent. So two talents is equivalent to the entire lifetime of labor of the entire, uh, of, of a person's entire life. So now we're talking about 10,000 talents, which is, mil, you know, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe into the billions of dollars, I don't know, in, in modern currency. It's an enormous amount of money. It'd be like me coming to you and going, hey, you know, you owe me $4 billion. You'd be like, good luck, you know, you're never going to get that back, right? Um, not in a lifetime, not in, not in 20 lifetimes. You're never going to see that kind of money from me. And that's really the point of the story. What Jesus is saying here is that it's not a lot, it's not just a lot of money, it's impossible money. It's such big money that you can't even conceive of it. There is literally no way that this servant is ever going to pay the, the king back. Just no way. So it would have been laughable, right? It's a kind of a joke, you know. The guy, and I don't know why the guy, what he could have possibly done to have borrowed that kind of money from the king. The implication is that maybe he was embezzling or stealing. Who knows? But he, that's, it's just an impossible sum of money. So the servant does the only thing he can do because he knows he's going to get thrown into debtor's prison. So he gets down on his knees and he's just begging. He's begging for mercy. He's like, 
You know, please, I, I know I could never pay this back to you, but give me some time, and I'll at least try. I mean, just give me a moment. Like, give me some time. Maybe I'll call some people up, and we can make this happen, and I can, I can somehow pay you back. And, of course, anybody that heard him would have laughed because there's, like, no way. And so he's begging. He's doing the only thing he can, begging for mercy. And the king does what? The king has compassion on him. The king says, you know what? I will forgive you completely of your debt. What's interesting is that he has mercy. And the Bible says that he canceled the man's debt. Canceled it. You don't owe me anymore. What he doesn't say is, you, I know you can't pay the 10,000 talents. How about 50? Can you pay me 50? How about 40? How about maybe, how about when you come down and I'll pay a lot of it and then you can meet me halfway? Doesn't say that. He says all of it. You're forgiven all of it. He doesn't say you're forgiven all of it, but how about like 50 denarius, like the, the smaller unit of money? Maybe like you could, no. He says all of it. You're free to go. Completely forgiven. His debts are wiped clean. Amazing. Now at this point, what was Peter thinking? I, I don't know what you're thinking, but he's probably thinking, what in the world does this have to do with me, Jesus because I'm not a king. I don't have this kind of money. What does this have to do with forgiveness? Like, we just, I just got done asking you, how many times should I forgive someone? And now you're talking about a king and 10,000 talents. What does this have to do with me, right? You might be thinking the same thing. Unless you know the story because it continues. And the forgiven servant goes away. And this guy, man, sees free completely, right? You should be having a party. But what does he do? What would you do? Here's what he did. He went and found a fellow servant, and he says, look, guy, hey, dude, you owe me a hundred denarius. Now, one denarius is equivalent to, remember I told you that one talent is equivalent to 20 years of labor. One denarius is equivalent to one day's labor, one day. So a hundred denarius, that's like three, three and a half months worth of work. And the guy says, no, totally reasonable. You owe me this money. Pay it back. But the Bible actually says he gets a little violent. He gets rough. Like, he goes UFC on the guy. And he grabs his throat, and he starts choking him. Like, like you know, Homer Simpson, right? And, and Bart, right? He's cho choking the guy. Um, and, and he's like, ah! You know, and, and so uh, all of the, the people around him are like, what are, what are you doing to this guy? And um, he has the other uh, servant thrown into prison. And they tell the king, the word, king gets word, and he's like, dude, um, that is insane. He says, um, you wicked servant, I forgave you all of the debt because you pleaded with me, because you were sorry. And you should not, and you have not shown mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And at this point, let me just stop for a second. Peter knew that things were not coming his way in this story, right? Because he sees himself not as the king, but God is the king. And he is the wicked servant. He is. This bad guy is him. He previously thought that, you know, okay, someone in his lifetime had offended him. Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive him? You know, that like, hey, me and God, you know, me and Jesus, we're going to get back at this guy. It's, called, it's a judgment time. And as the story goes on, I mean, like he's, he's, wait a second, the wicked servant is me. That I have been forgiven a lot. And now I'm making a big deal about a little. And with this in mind, keep this story in mind as we move on a little bit and we talk about the Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. He gathers them all in the room. Let me explain just a little bit about what Passover is because we're talking about it today. This is Thursday in Holy Week. 
Passover begins there. It's a commemoration of God's miraculous deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. If you know the story, it's a really fascinating story. In Exodus, you can go read it yourself. It's really amazing. But just give you a quick um, overview of how it would have looked. So they, they would choose a lamb on the 10th day of the month of Nisan, and then they would keep it. It was a spotless lamb without blemish. They would keep it until the 14th day. They would be sacrificed, and then they would cook it and eat it together on the 14th day of the month. And God's people have been observing this for 1,500 years. This wasn't a new celebration. It wasn't like, you know, they got together for the very first one. It was ongoing. The Bible commanded that God's people celebrate Passover together. It's super important, even to this day, um, celebrated by Jews and Christians alike. And it was anticipated, too, that there would be a future deliverance of God's people by the Messiah. But at the Passover meal, Jesus began a conversation and introduced a new supper, a new celebration, a new way of participating in this idea of God redeeming his people. And he introduces the Lord's Supper to us for the first time. But before he does, he says something very curious. I wanted to get to that in Mark 14. We're going to begin in verse 18. Now the words are on the screen. And as they were reclining at a table and they were eating, so just kind of stop for a minute and imagine that they're just sort of resting after the meal. They've eaten a lot. Uh, now the wine is being poured and they're relaxing and they're talking. And Jesus begins this conversa conversation. He says, uh, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. What? Not us. Yeah, one of you. It's one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful. Of course you would be, right? And then say to him, one after the other, is it I? Like a rhetorical question, right? Is it I? Not possibly I. No, I couldn't be the one, right? Is it you? And the other person would be, no, is it I? You know? And so you get this picture of people going around the room, and they're sorrowful, and they're saying, like, it couldn't be me. I'm not, I wouldn't betray you. But it, indeed, one would. And then he introduces the Lord's Supper. He takes the bread, and he says this in a way to say, I want you to, and, and, and the whole point of the Lord's Supper is, we call it communion today, by the way, and the idea of a communion is that we are experiencing something with Jesus. Like we're, we're actually, as we're partaking of the elements, we're, we're participating in his suffering in a way that uh, we understand it better. And so he takes the bread in verse 22, says, as they were eating, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, take, this is my body broken for you. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And then Matthew's version, he adds these lines. He said, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The spotless lamb, that sacrifice that you see in the Old Testament, looking forward to the spotless lamb of God who bled on the cross and died, and his blood was spilled, sinless Jesus, as the ransom for many and for the forgiveness of our sins. He goes on. You'd think the story would stop. But in verse 27, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. You'll forget what I've taught you. You will go your own way. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So you're all going to fall away. And then, of course, Peter says in verse 29, no, 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 that can't be true. He says, even though they all fall away, no, I will not. I'm one of the three. I'm super important. I would never do that. And Jesus gives him the bad news, verse 30. He says, no, no, actually, Peter, um, truly I tell you that this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Betrayal, falling away, scattering, 
denial. You know, it sounds a lot like the reasons that many of us give to not forgive people, right? They have denied me. They do, they're not loyal to me. They're gossiping about me. They've hurt me. They've wronged me. They've betrayed me. That's why I'm not forgiving them. And so that is the beginning of the case that we have been building in our minds. But Jesus is wedging in between all of this and saying, look, I want you to internalize my forgiveness. I want you to look at, to celebrate this Passover in a different way now. From this moment on, you're going to be consuming the elements in remembrance of my forgiveness. And so that's what makes communion so amazing and so special and so uh, something that we should appreciate every time we take it. And we're going to take it later on together. What happens when we say no to forgiveness? What happens when we choose to not internalize Jesus' forgiveness for us, but we do it our own way? We choose our own direction. You ever done that? I've done it. And I'll tell you what happens. It's not a pretty picture. It's absolutely destructive. It leads to, first of all, you chaining yourself to your own hurt. What happens when you don't forgive is you build the bond between you and your own hurt. You strengthen it, you reinforce it, and you chain yourself to it. And then once you start moving through life, you now have a burden that you drag with you. It's yours to carry. When you don't forgive, it, is, it becomes a burden on your own back. It really does. It isn't about a gift to someone else. It's about creating a weight on you. Do you understand the distinction? You're not, not giving a gift. Not, like not forgiving somebody isn't refusing to give a gift. It's holding on to your garbage and carrying it with you with all of its, um, with all of its putrid, uh, bitter hate. Uh, one, one, one definition of bitterness that I love, and this is on the screen now, is that bitterness is swallowing poison yourself, but hoping that the other person will die. That's real, guys. Swallowing poison and hoping the other person will die. That's exactly what not forgiving, that's exactly what bitterness will do to you. Not only will it not kill the other person, but it will lead to a pattern of bitterness and, and resentment that will literally carry on to generations. I believe that unforgiveness and bitterness leads to family dysfunction. It leads to generational habits and patterns. It leads to new families inheriting ways of dealing with broken relationships and pain and suffering and patterns of unforgiveness. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. Like, is that you? I, I had to wrestle with my own childhood and decide that I'm going to break that pattern because I do not want my unforgiveness and my bitterness toward things that happened to me as a child to infect my relationship with my son. In order to do that, I had to say, have I forgiven? Have I dealt with my pain? Have I dealt with this hurt? Am I chained to it? And I was, in fact, chained to it for many years. Not forgiving can lead yourself in a very destructive way. But this is the good news. Jesus on the cross was the only exception allowed to the rule of forgiveness. So listen, so many of us, we think we're the exception. Our story is different. Like, Pastor Scott, I appreciate all you're saying. But in my situation, you really don't know what I've been through. You don't understand my story. You don't understand my hurt. Like, what this person did to me, if I told you about it, you would be so disgusted. It's real. And I, and, and I believe you. But it's, you are not an exception. You see, the thing is, is that Jesus is the king in the story. And we are the wicked servants. Consider for a moment what you have done 
to be indebted to God. Consider for a moment that if Jesus came to settle an account and you have not made your peace with him in Jesus Christ, you cannot pay. There's nothing that you can do to produce that kind of money at that moment. When the accounts are settled, you can't. And yet we betray, we give up on him, we deny him, and then we beg for mercy. We get down on our knees and we plead before God and we say, God, please forgive us. Please take away my pain. Please take away my suffering. And in compassion, Jesus, God says, yes, I've provided the lamb. I've provided the way out in Jesus Christ. And he forgives us our debts and he cancels our debts. Luke 23, 33 says, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive Scott. Father, forgive each one of you, for they know not what they do. He is the king, and the price was paid by Jesus on the cross. And that's what makes communion so sweet when we celebrate it together. It's not a ritual. It's not something we do just to have another thing, another churchy thing to do. It, there's meaning to it that if you will allow yourself to saturate yourself with the idea of you being the wicked servant and him being the king, it changes your perspective of what happens downstream from that. All of the other people that owe you, all the other people that have hurt you. What do you do with that? How do you forgive? Well, we're going to go to that now. The Bible says, as the ushers are passing out the, uh, the elements right now, I'm going to invite them forward to begin to pass out the elements the Bible says, let a man examine himself. Let a person examine himself. In verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 11, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. What is the body? Is it your body? Is it your physical body? No, it's the body of Christ. It's the community of believers. It's, it's the rest of humanity. And so let a man examine himself. Don't take communion lightly. Don't think that this is something that you can enter into with trivia. Like you can just pass it. Like it's just, it's just a bunch of juice and it's some bread and I'm a little hungry and I like the sweet taste of the juice or whatever. Like it's not about that. The Bible says, let a man examine himself. He's talking to a church, by the way, that during communion, the Corinthians would actually run up and like drink and get drunk off the communion wine, right? Um, and and uh, can you imagine that, like, coming up? What kind of church would that be? Everybody says, like, be like the early church, but, you know, run up and get drunk off the two-buck chuck that we're serving here. You know, it's like, no way. Or get, you know, overeating and gluttony with the, with the communion bread and the elements. No, it's, it's insane. But what he's saying here is don't, don't allow yourself to get into the mode where you take this with a sense of, oh, this is ordinary but lean into it. Before you take communion, examine yourself and make sure that you're right before God. Part of being right before God is letting his forgiveness flow through you toward others. You need to ask yourself, is there unrepentant um, sin in my life? But also, is there somebody that has wronged me that I have not forgiven them? There's four questions as we take communion together that I want to ask you, honestly. There's four just really quickly. I want to have, give you four questions that I want you to answer as you take the elements. Number one is, have you considered the enormous debt that you have owed to God? Which he forgave in Jesus Christ, which you could never pay back. There is no way for you to pay back. You have no 
earthly mechanism to pay God back. He has forgiven an enormous amount of debt. 10,000 talents, 100,000 talents, a million talents, it doesn't matter. Whatever that number is, however many times you've sinned against him, you can't even pay back one denarius of the debt that you owe to God. But the price he paid is in that cup that you hold in your hands right now. The price that he paid is the blood of his son, the spotless lamb of Jesus Christ. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves you. Second question, is there someone that has wronged, hurt, or damaged you? Now, this is real. And I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that your hurt is wrong. That your feeling of like, wow, this has destroyed my life, maybe. Like, it could be a significant wrong. I'm not here to tell you that that you shouldn't feel that way. But I'm here to tell you exactly what forgiveness is. What is canceling the debt? Number three, have I truly canceled their debt to me? And you got to hear me out on this one because this is where it gets really important that you pay attention. What does debt canceling look like? For one thing, it can be a unidirectional uh, transaction. So if my bank called me, they're never going to do this, but let's say they called me up and they said, Scott, we really like you, man. You're a good guy. You're a pastor. We found out you do a great job. And so we're gonna, you don't have to pay your mortgage anymore. We're just going to cancel that out. I'll be like, woohoo. You know? But what happens if I said, like, I don't feel good about that. I owe you the money. Like, I'm going to write you a check. They're like, no, no need to write us a check. It's all paid for. We've forgiven the debt completely. It can be initiated by one person, by one party against the other, and it doesn't require the other party. What's important about that is that the person that you are trying to forgive may not be accessible. Like, could they have passed away? Could they be a, a father, a grandfather? Could they be an old friend? You, you've lost track of them. You, you couldn't find them if you tried. Or maybe somebody that if you got to them, they would just hurt you in new ways. And so it's not safe to even approach them to forgive them right? And so, so it can be unidirectional. It can be you forgiving the debt. They don't need to receive it. They could say, well, no, my debt's not forgiven. I still owe you that. Well, you could say, no, I'm going to take your checks every time you write them, and I'm going to rip them up. Like, you don't owe me the debt. You can, you can try to pay the mortgage, but we'll just send it back. It's unidirectional, and that's amazing, though. Think about that for a moment. If you have grown up in a family where you've been abused, you've been hurt, maybe in, in, in severe ways, there is a sense in which you can forgive the other person even if they're not there to receive it. And maybe if it's not safe for you to go to them and say, look, here's the way that you've wronged me. That's an amazing thing about forgiveness. The second thing about it is this, that um, it has nothing to do with the hurt that you carry. So imagine again, if you're a person that's grown up in a family and you've been abused, I'm not saying that you have, but many in this room have, and I know that for a fact, but uh, let's, let's just say that uh, um, you do forgive. And you work through that. Is your hurt gone right away? I mean, you just say like, I'm done. You know, I've canceled your debt. What does that look like? What does it mean to cancel debt, like emotionally? Does that mean that at that point, like I'm not going to hurt over this anymore? I don't need counseling. I don't need to work through it. There's no process. That's all erased. No, please don't take that away from me. Like that's not, that's not healthy. That's not forgiveness. What forgiveness is, is listen very carefully. It's saying, I choose not to prosecute or, or to um, exert my rights any longer up against this offense. That's my choice. I choose to no longer um, exert my rights or assert my rights, rather, against this offense. Now, once I've forgiven that person, 
Does that mean that the state shouldn't prosecute or that if there's a crime against you that you shouldn't like press charges or anything like that? No, and the reason is, is because that's not an offense against you. That's an offense against society and you have to see it that way. That's why when a crime happens, it's not you versus the other person. It's the state of Idaho or the state of Washington versus that other person. Justice is separate. And so again, forgiveness is something that you can handle and justice is something that the state can handle. It's perfectly legitimate to, to see it that way. Now, what do you do with the hurt? Once you forgive and once you choose not to assert your rights and prosecute that other person personally, then what does that mean for you? Do you just all of a sudden evaporate and you can't move on? No, what it means is that you begin to say, this is something that I'm moving on past and you begin to seek the help and seek the counseling and actually deal with the hurts, but that happens after the forgiveness. It really does. So what happens, the problem with it is that we conflate the feeling of forgiveness being free completely of the hurt and the suffering and the pain. And the fact is that you might for the rest of your life struggle over a hurt, but you need to forgive and then to begin to work past it at that point. You see that it's the beginning of a process whereby you say, I no longer choose to assert my rights in this situation. Let me explain. A couple of years ago, I had somebody that wronged me. At least I, I, I believe that they did wrong me. And uh, um, I remember saying, I, but I forgive them. Because that's a pastoral thing to do, right? I'll just forgive them. And I don't think I fully understood the significance and the weight of what forgiveness was, forgiveness was because it was in the car with another friend and I began to just sort of automatically like click into story mode. Because I think I'm more of a talker, right? Surprise. Um, and uh, so, so anyway, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm talking and all of a sudden I start to tell the story of so-and-so. Well, you know, I did all these things for them and you know, like blah, blah, blah. And they, and, and, uh, and, and they wronged me, you know. And, and in the middle of telling the story, like it hit me like the Holy Spirit just kind of went boom. Number one, like stop because you're gossiping. Wow, you know, okay, that's bad. So stop it, like repent, okay. But the second thing was, is that you haven't forgiven them, Scott. I'm like, what? No, I, I have. No, you haven't, because you're replaying the story. You're prosecuting the crime. And at that moment, I literally stopped. I said, look, dude, I'm sinning right now. I have to, I got to stop this. I, and I said, look, I don't think I've forgiven this person, because I'm telling you this story. I'm still prosecuting it. And I said, I said, brother, I'm going to tell you right now. I forgive them, and from this moment forward, I am never going to tell that story in a way to try to assert my rights or to make you feel my pain or to assert my pain to you so that you get on my side. I'm not going to relive that story. I'm not going to rehash it. That was tough, man. And I guess what? God has given me the grace to stick with that to this day. And I, it, it's so freeing, honestly. There is freedom in that. L let me just tell you something. Not only will not forgiving cause poison and bitterness to chain you to your own hurt. It is devastating psychologically. It enslaves you. I'm like, here to tell you this. Move on. Like in any way, shape, or form. Try to forgive. Try to get into the process of moving on past your rights, moving on past your hurts, because it is destroying you. Like psychologically, mentally, spiritually, it tears you down. It deconstructs all that God wants to do to build you up. It is hurting you. Listen, it is hurting you. Listen to me as a pastor. It is hurting you. Listen to me as a friend, as a brother in Christ. It is hurting you. Please, please, I beg you, be free. And so the final question, number four is, 
do you want to be free? Do you want to be free? You can be free. Because not forgiving is a chain and you're reinforcing it and you're building it or you're going to cut it by the grace of God this morning as we celebrate communion together. I'm going to turn over to Emily for a moment. So we're going to take communion together. Um, Matthew 26, verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. So go ahead and take the bread. After they had eaten, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, thank you so much for the price that you paid. Your blood was the price for forgiveness for our sins. We don't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. Like Scott said, nothing in this earthly capacity could prove to you we deserve your love and forgiveness, but you gave it anyways, God. As we take communion as a, as a group, as a body, I pray that every time we do this is in remembrance of you and the price that you paid for the forgiveness of our sins. Amen. We're going to sing the chorus of Living Hope. Hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. That wasn't free. Jesus paid that price for us with his blood, with his body. So as we sing this, I want everybody to sing this with me, just in complete awe and wonder of God and Jesus and the sacrifice that he made for us. to come forward. We're going to receive this morning's tithes and offerings, but I also wanted to, as they're coming forward, amen. I want to leave you with an important thought, and, and uh, this just occurred to me, but you do realize that the price he paid, that was enough. But some of you guys are still writing a check to Jesus. You really are. You don't, you see it, okay, he paid my debt, but I still need to give him something, right? Like I, maybe I need to do some works to earn it. Don't send Jesus a check. He doesn't need your money. That's not, 
has anything to do with giving right now. Like, I mean, give in obedience to him. What I'm saying then is this. His sacrifice, the price he paid, it's enough. Take the communion elements as a reminder every time you take them that it's sufficient, that his sacrifice is sufficient. It's not Jesus plus your effort. You see, the thing is, is that once you understand that, you want to live for him. You want to obey him. You want to appropriate the word of God into your life and live as an obedient servant, humbly given over to him. Like, don't write him a check. You can't add to it, so don't even try. We pray with the offering. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless and multiply. Thank you for the gifts that come into this church. Thank you for the sustaining giving. Um, it's, it's awesome, Lord, to see what you're doing here at Canyon Creek Church on the Palouse. I'm, I'm humbled by it. I'm awed by it. Um, Jesus, I'm so grateful for these people, for your gener the generous gifts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.